Hey gang, Red Hills Rancher here, back again for a special episode of Ranching Reboot. Joined today by my co-pilot, C.K. Vishnushki. <laughs> I got it right. We just we just had a discussion. Uh, anyway, we're joined today by Carl Thiedemann and Seth Itzkin from Soil for Climate. So guys, welcome to Ranching Reboot. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. It's an honor. So... Let's uh let's let's just start off. So, what is soil for climate? Carl, you want to uh, take that one first, and then I'll jump I, I in. I think I can handle this one. Sure. Uh, soil for climate uh, is a U.S.-based nonprofit that advocates for soil restoration as a climate solution. We were founded in 2015. We work with some of the leading scientists, practitioners, uh, journalists uh, all around the world. We've got over 22,000 members from more than 100 countries presently on our Facebook group. And if any of your listeners uh, want to follow this topic, we invite them to join. That's terrific. So tell me about some of the projects you guys are involved in, like uh, specifically the Maasai tribe. Uh, I'll get off to Seth. Uh, sure, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll handle that one. But but also let me um, um, kind of tether a little bit on, on Carl's, you know, response about us. Um, you, you know, yes, we are a, a, a nonprofit, a 501c3 nonprofit, um, and, and that's all correct. But I also like to think of us as, as really kind of like, um, you know, a, a player that's trying to kind of uh, mix things up a little bit, if you will, you know, really kind of be a voice of science, policy, practice, with a little bit of an attitude, you know, frankly, and um, not being afraid to kind of, um, um, you know, kind of turn turn the wa- turn the waters a bit, um, and and push back against some of the, um, you know, some of the mismessaging that's going on out there. Right. Um, and so, and it, it have a little bit of an attitude. Let's put it that way. Um, so, so in terms of uh, you know our our projects. Uh, we like to use a tagline that, that that we're involved in the science, the policy, and the practice. Um, and then the the science specifically, we refer to the science of of range management that supports building soil carbon. And uh, the leaders in that area, of course, are you know Richard Teague at Texas A and M, uh, Paige Stanley, uh, Carl, help me out, Berkeley. Is that Berkeley? Jason Roundtree, Michigan State. Yep. There you go. Um, and um, uh, that's a science. Uh, the policy, uh, the healthy soils legislation is becoming an important um, factor in all this now. Uh, we have a page called policy.soilforclimate.org. Soil for climate is all one word and the four is the number four. So the word soil, the number four, then climate.org. And then if you put policy in front of that, you'll go to our page that has a database with a map of all the policies, um, healthy soil policies at the state level. And then um, the practice is of course the practitioners that are that are actually doing it, you know, making this stuff happen on the ground. And then our own branded project, you know, a soil for climate branded project is, um, is uh, with the Maasai group in Kenya. And, um, we're really excited about that and we've been doing funding for that and we've um we've had them do um holistic plan grazing training there is actually a savory hub in kenya 
And so a group of the Maasai have gone there. I went with them to the training once. Uh, they've gone back again a second time. Uh, we've helped them buy cows. We've helped them create a watering point. We've helped them build a corral, you know, all the logistics, the infrastructure, you know, of grazing. Um, so we're really excited about that. And there's a group now, there's a Maasai group in Tanzania which is interested and in we're, we're gonna start a funding effort for them as well. So there, there you have it. That's terrific, that's terrific. So, and I've, I've kind of wondered this for a while, any specific reason why you chose the Maasai tribe or was that just the way it, it happened? It just, it's just the way it happened. I mean, just through Facebook and you know LinkedIn or whatever. I don't even remember to be quite honest how we first made the contact, but um, a fellow there named Dalmas Diampati um, contacted me and we just hit it off and we became friends. Um, I'm now an official member of his community. I've been um, initiated into the Maasai via Maasai ritual. Oh, that's amazing. Which, uh, which involved um, a sacrifice of a goat and of um, drinking warm goat blood right there on the spot and, and eating some organ meat right there, raw on the spot. Um, not a big amount, you know, sort of, you know, just symbolically having a little nibble, but, but nonetheless, right. that, was a, that was part of the ritual. And it, it all just sort of happened, you know, and we're just sort of going with the flow and, and it's exciting to, to see where it's going. Seth, do you have your Maasai talking stick handy? Oh, <laughs> that's right. Well, you know what, when we do the video version of this, I'll, I'll hold the talking stick. Our, our goal ultimately is for the Maasai project to, to serve as a model that could be replicated uh, through other Maasai communities and, and ultimately through large parts of, of Africa and elsewhere around the world that are facing desertification. Right. Um, the Savory hub that Seth mentioned is one of about 50 hubs established worldwide now by the Savory Institute where, um, where people can receive training on how to do uh, better grazing management and so forth. And, and Seth was just showing the the talking stick that he's brought to uh, any number of formal occasions. Um, getting into the Massachusetts State House uh, was a little bit of a challenge, but uh, <laughs> security guards. Uh, uh, yes, yes. I had to say, well, technically it is a weapon. <laughs> <laughs> the pen is mightier than the sword. But, but, but I use it symbolically as a talking stick. <laughs> so the, the, the guard kind of grinned. He said, all right, go on. <laughs> so since we, I mean, we can see each other on, on video, but, you know, for the listeners on the podcast, uh, the, tell us about your stick. What is it, about 18 inches? And it's just a... Uh, a symbolic stick what is what is it used for uh, um well you know i mean honestly i mean it i think it might have been a you know a weapon traditionally but 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 now it's just ritualistic uh, you just sort of you know hold it while you're talking um you know so I, I refer to it as the talking stick and we just pass it along but to describe it to the to the listeners um it um it uh, it's a long thin uh, piece of wood with, with a knob at the end so it could be conceived conceived like a club however it's very um ornately decorated with beads and then there's beautiful little like silver dangling things um i'm not i'm even sure what you call it but 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 you know um it, it's meant to be ornamental mm -hmm. you know at this point and um but sturdy enough, if somebody's not listening while you're holding the talking <laughs> stick, you could yes. bonk them on the head, yes. get their attention. Yes, that's right. You I'll could get, you, carry a big stick. You could get yeah. their attention, right. So 
let's talk about some of the benefits of of what you're doing and and why we want to graze holistically and why we need to, to why we need to be worried about desertification sure I'll, I'll back up a little bit here and say that uh soil for climate takes a an ecumenical approach to soil restoration uh that is we um, we advocate for no-till, diversified cover crops, varied crop rotations, compost, biochar, remineralization, um, agroforestry, silvopasture, any number of different practices for, for putting carbon back into the ground. And, and to be clear, it's the, it's ultimately it's the plants that are transferring the carbon from the atmosphere into the soil. Uh, it used to be thought, and in many cases it's still taught, that it's plant litter or leaf litter, decaying leaves essentially that fall into the ground and then the, as they break down, decay, the carbon goes into the soil. And, and that's true, some carbon gets into the soil that way, but what we now understand, and, and there's been really a profound shift in our knowledge of soil biology and plant physiology, that most of the carbon gets into the ground through what are technically known as root exudates. Mm -hmm. And what that is, is that each type of plant makes a, a certain blend of sugar syrups um, that whenever the sun is shining on the plant, the plant is producing the syrup and releasing it into the ground. You can think of it in terms of maple sap. And uh, it turns out each type of plant makes its own special blend that feeds a different microbial community. So the greater the diversity of plants above ground, the greater the diversity of life in the soil. And the more diverse the life is in the soil, um, the, the better the soil can express so many different properties and become more resilient to, to drought, to can build up carbon uh, much quicker in the soil and so forth. The reason that our focus has shifted, you know, largely, I would say, to the grazing side is because of two reasons. Number one, two thirds of all land in agri agriculture in the, United, in the United States and also worldwide are used for grazing. So it's, it's really the elephant in the room. And number two, I would say the grazing side is, is least understood. And, um, and there's also a fair amount of antipathy or anti-livestock sentiment right now yeah. we're pushing back against. Um, Trees are good. Cows are bad. Well, this is something we hear all the time. And the thing is, everybody knows that industrial animal agriculture can be quite harmful. And to answer your question about desertification, you know, humans have been wrecking the environment going back for thousands of years now uh, through burning, deforestation, plowing, and, uh, and mismanaged grazing. And uh, thankfully now, uh, thanks to the work of, um, uh, there's a French grazing scientist in the 1950s, André Vaucen, and uh, later followed on by um, Alan Savory's work in the 1970s, we now understand the importance of grazing in a nature-based way. It keeps the animals clustered together, moved every day or two um, onto a new spot, and then um, enough time is allowed for the plants to fully recover before that same patch is grazed again. And, um, and of course, you know, I know I'm preaching to the converted here because your company exactly is designed to help uh, graziers, ranchers, uh, herders um, uh, decide when and where to move the animals for the maximum beneficial impact for the productivity of the, of the soil and for the carrying capacity, for the health of the animals, uh, you know, and really for the, the well-being of the community as a whole and for the environment. So um, I don't know, Seth, you want to add anything to that or no no you nailed it that was perfect thank you how did you guys meet carl and seth i want to know that oh at a parole meeting oh really <laughs> i'm not surprised somehow that's how brian and i met too <laughs> <laughs> no well well i'll tell you um 
Um, it's just a little, a little interesting background. Um, uh, I actually don't remember how we met as adults. It's been, it's been a long time. We've known each other for decades, but we found out after we already knew each other as adults that as children, like 12 years old, we were both members of a youth program at the Museum of Science in Boston. That's how, that's how little nerds we were. Um, and the Museum of Science had, a, had a, a youth program where they would train you know, young kids on a specific exhibit. And then they would have you sort of stand around that exhibit and answer questions for people. Oh, yeah. This is at the Museum of Science. And we found out later that we were both in that same program at the same time. And, and we may very well have sort of like been in the training room at the time. Um, so that's just like another sort of tidbit of little information about him and I as sort of, you know. You nerds, guys have been buddies for a long nerds time. from the get-go since we were 12, but we didn't even know each other. Carl, do you remember how, how we met later in life? Uh, I remember volunteering at the Museum of Science when I was 15 and 16 years old. Um, so I don't remember the 12 year old part. Uh, yes, as um, Seth and I were both fans of uh, Buckminster Fuller. Um, and I, I mentioned him earlier, he was the uh, inventor of the geodesic dome. And um, uh, in the early 1990s, uh, I was running an organization at Harvard called the Phylomorphs, which brought together people interested in the subject of shape and design in, in nature and really understanding nature through mathematics and art is very eclectic organization and each month I would arrange different speakers and uh, Seth was one of the attendees. It, it turned out both Seth and I had met, um, although he and I didn't know each other at the time, we both met Buckminster Fuller when we were college students and um, both were sort of taken in and fell under the spell of Fuller's vision of the notion that humanity could be a success, could succeed on the planet um, without destroying the environment, meeting everybody's needs. And uh, it was just a very hopeful, uh, a, a technophile sort of driven view. And um, over the years, uh, as uh, Seth and I, as we became friends, uh, we were both um, interested in climate activism and studying about climate change. And uh, eventually through our work, we began to understand that while it's crucial to cut emissions, that doesn't solve the problem we still have to deal with this legacy carbon in the atmosphere. And, um, and even while you're cutting emissions, it does nothing to heal the habitat where the wildlife are going extinct or, or to replenish these dried up rivers or, or, um, or meet other human needs and, and environmental needs. And, and what we did learn was that soil restoration addressed all of these issues. It got the carbon out of the sky, but it, but it also restored the wildlife habitat and also provided high quality, better, you know, more nutritious food for people. Um, so it just, I think we we're both taken in by this all-encompassing solution and we began to see that not only do we need the technology, but we also need, in essence, nature's technology, that nature's been evolving for millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of years. And, um, and it's, it's worth pointing out that Alan Savory, the grazing pioneer, back in, um, I believe it was 2010, won the Buckminster Fuller Challenge Award uh, for... Um, for being a person who who recognized a, a pattern in nature and was able to apply it, you know, for the benefit of humanity. I think I remember, I remember that. But at the time, you know, it, it was real hard to get anybody to care about who Alan Savory was. Mm, that's changed. That was before the TED talk. 
exactly. So, um, Brian, can I can I jump in here with sure. more on the on the Bucky stuff? Um, yeah, I'm sort of glad that Carl just reminded me. Yeah, I mean that was we were really colleagues for for a long time around Buckminster Fuller, like long before we were into Alan Savory, and and in some ways, Alan Savory sort of. I mean, I mean, Buckminster Fuller had already passed, you know, and so it was sort of a historical appreciation of him. But Alan Savory was alive, you know, and um, it's like this is this is the thing, you know, we need to be working on this now. Um, and and I think we both realized that in many ways, Alan Savory was like the new Buckminster Fuller. And and but but working with living systems, um, and their Buckminster Fuller had this idea of trim tab. Well, it wasn't wasn't his idea. I mean, the trim tab is a nautical concept, um, and and an aeronautic concept. But Buckminster Fuller adopted that as his metaphor for life. And just for you or for the listeners, the, the trim tab is technically. Um, originated from nautical terms it's it, it's the end of the tiller it's like the tiny little tiller at the end of a bigger tiller mm-hmm. um and then on the plane on the wing you'll see it it's like a tiny little wing on the end of the of the bigger wing and and uh the way it works literally is is it creates a low pressure system which then pulls the rest of the tiller or the wing in that direction and um, whereas if you were to try to push a boat from the front, it would be almost impossible, but with like a little piece of metal or cardboard, you can steer it from the back and, 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 and Buckminster Fuller's metaphor was that where to intervene in the system where the least amount of pressure can move an entire system. And the system is symbolic of any system, a right. political system, a design sciences, where to make the, the least effort to move the whole thing. And so trim tab became his metaphor. And he, he used to say, call me trim tab. And, and Carl and I have visited his tombstone at Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And on, on the tombstone, it says, call me trim tab. And, and we see the holistic grazing is like that trim tab. You know, where just to intervene in the system that can change, profoundly change the outcome, just grazing management, same mm-hmm. animals, same people, same land, just change the management slightly and have profoundly different outcomes. So, so actually I'm glad we're having the Bucky discussion because it's actually reminding me of the initial, um, um, what's the word spirit of, 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 of direction for us of how we got right. into this. And now we're, now we're so into, we're so eyeball deep into it, into the grazing and all that. I've even forgotten that it actually came from a completely non-grazing um, sort of um, inspiration of, of how to behave in the world, how to make a difference in the world. Um, and, and now what's interesting is that Alan has the term of marginal reaction. And if you read Alan's work, he talks about, you know, the various steps of holistic management. And the last one is where, I don't know whether it's the last one, but one of the last ones, he talks about the marginal reaction. He says, where's the point where, where um, 
I forget the exact definition of it, but for all practical purposes, it's sort of like that trim tab thing. You know, where's the point where the, the least effort now can make the biggest difference? Carl, can you, do you want to add a little something about the, the sort of the Savory's marginal reaction? Hmm. Um, there's a, a term in systems dynamics um, that's also related to, um, uh, to, to where you, you want to apply the, you know, the least amount of pressure in order for the whole system to respond. And um, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the term right now. I'll, I'll try to find it as, as, we're, as we're continuing the discussion. I, I do want to mention it's probably no coincidence that um, at least uh, three of our advisory board members had some relationship with Buckland Stafuller as well and were inspired by his work uh, going back. Uh, in Amy Edmondson, who's now a tenured professor at Harvard Business School, um, as an undergraduate at Harvard, she kind of fell under Bucky's spell and ended up working with Fuller the last two years of his life and then writing a book about his work. Um, Hunter Lovins, whom some of you may know out in Colorado, uh, she was co-author of the book Natural Capitalism and uh, recently uh, wrote A Finer Future. And um, Hunter is a, a rancher, but also a, a visionary. And, uh, and she was inspired early on by Buckman's Fuller's work. And also Greg Watson, who served as the uh, Commissioner of Agriculture in Massachusetts under several administrations. Um, and Greg, as a, as a graduate student, I believe, um, worked at a facility in Woods Hole, Massachusetts called the New Alchemy Institute, uh, which was in, back in the 1960s, started by a group of visionary scientists uh, committed to finding technologies and biologies for a post-carbon world. Um, so they were very much ahead of the curve. Uh, John Todd and his wife, Nancy Jack Todd, uh, headed up that group. And uh, Greg Watson had the opportunity to, uh, to, to meet Buckman Sefula, as did both Seth and I as well. So his, his legacy is very much alive and well uh, and, and continuing to spread throughout the world as we see more and more that we are able to have profoundly positive effects on nature. And historically, uh, and this dates back to, to Man and Nature, um, a book in, from 1863 uh, um, by uh, George, uh, uh, George Marsh Perkins, I think his name was, who um, basically described anytime humans affected with the environment, the, the effect was, was negative. And, um, and, and we understand now that that's not necessarily the case. Anytime you hear about environmental impact, the assumption is that, that it's harmful to the land. And, and we understand now that in fact, more land needs to be impacted. There, there's, a, there's a whole divide within the agricultural community of land sharing versus land sparing. You know, there's one approach that says, oh, we have to intensify nature, you know, so it's taken up less land. And, and then there's the other approach that says, no, in fact, so much of the land around the world has been harmed and degraded that we need to impact that land, but in a beneficial way. And this ties into the discussion of, about meat. Um, we often hear, you know, eat less meat. We have to reduce our meat consumption. And Seth and I look at that and we say, what are you talking about? You know, there's billions of acres of land that have to be healed and grazing is the only appropriate activity. There's not enough wild animals left. So we need to use livestock to do the job. We don't so, need more fake meat. We need more cows. Exactly. Also, yeah, exactly. It's a type of meat. They're, they're talking about grain finished. I'll, I'll let Seth address right. the, uh, the whole uh, fake meat issue if you want. He's to very passionate about it. I <laughs> I follow you, Seth, and I'm like, I, you say things that I wish I could say, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> 
well, I'm I'm technically like retired, so you know right. I don't care anymore. <laughs> I, you I don't have to worry about somebody taking away your paycheck. Yeah, I can say what I think. Yep, there you go. So that that's something that's you know kind of on everybody's mind lately is you know fake meat and the pressure of fake meat, especially with I hate to say his name, but Bill Gates in his last book about you know, how he thinks we need to eat and him saying that rich nations should eat fake meat. And to me, that is the most absurd, asinine possible thing that anybody could say, because in order to make that fake meat, it requires a fantastic amount of energy, a a lot of monoculture farming that, you know, leads to soil erosion, herbicide, pesticide use, and then all that stuff has to be processed. And then you're going to put it in a lab and synthesize it back into a patty that, quote, bleeds? Um, no. I'll take mine from a cow, thanks. It, it it just doesn't make sense to me that that you can invest that much energy and technology into something that you're going to eat when we can do that with sunshine and grass. Yeah, well... It's obviously horrifying. I mean, it's a it's a profound misdirection of logic, and and of understanding of how ecosystems work, and uh, and and it has no concept, of course, of restoration. It has no idea about restoration ecology, and um, and you know, it's a technological. Um, I, I don't even think it's a sincere technological. Um, attempt at at fixing the the problem of industrial you know of industrial meat you know um, and the whole I know, the whole idea that you're going to fix one industrial problem with another industrial problem yeah. you know, it is itself sort of absurd um, you know why not just change how we produce meat you know why not just produce meat in a way that's you know ecologically responsible. And so, and so now, because they know that people are becoming hip to that, that the problem is not the cow, it's the how, right? You know, that phrase, it's not the cow, it's the how. I'll give a shout out to Les Concer of Blue Nest Beef for coming up with that phrase. Um, now that they know that people are becoming hip to that, they're actually attacking regenerative agriculture. So imposter foods, that's how I'm going to refer to them. Um, Suits me is, just fine. <laughs> yes. Imposter foods um, is, um, and, and glyphosate burger. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, they're, they're attacking regenerative agriculture. I mean, I mean, what else do you need to know than that? I mean, even if regenerative agri, even if all of the claims about regenerative agriculture weren't true, even if, just 10% of them were true. Wouldn't, yeah. that, wouldn't that still be headline news? Wouldn't you still be running full Because it's force? a disruptor. You know? That's why they don't want it. It's you know, disruptive and, so, and it threatens every single established industry almost. I mean, yeah, uh, of course. Is that like, is that why PepsiCo is doing what they're doing then? They're trying to greenwash Regen Ag? Well, well, but, 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 but the thing is they, that there now there's going to be some sincere effort right see because if if they can actually grow sugar cane you know or whatever 
in in a way that is regenerative why not Good. you see uh same thing with mcdonald's you know mcdonald's is now funding some of the research yeah. in regenerative agriculture and well why not you know what have they got to lose i mean if, if, if it's still going to be beef and if they can source it in a way that's regenerative fine now if there's a certain amount of greenwashing that's going on in their corporate headquarters well so what you know, I mean, the point is the research is the research. And if there's going to be exactly. regen producers producing meat in a regenerative way, fine, you know, let them put their spin on it. But but the, the point is the problem for imposter foods is that they're now hooked on soy. It has to be soy, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and 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 the and and all of the soy is at scale, the soy that's produced at scale, it's all Roundup Ready soy. It's all sprayed with glyphosate. The glyphosate's going into the water. It's causing cancer. Monsanto is being sued up the Yazoo with these landmark settlements in the billions of dollars. Um, so, so Imposter Foods is stuck. You know, their their whole marketing paradigm is based on vilifying meat necessarily meat and so the idea that there could be a healthy meat or regenerative meat is just a profound threat to their entire marketing scheme and if you follow me on linkedin um and ck knows this you know we're going toe-to-toe with them yes he sure is you're passionate that's what i'm gonna call it (laughs) i'm gonna have to get on linkedin and check that out you know and to my amazement they haven't kicked they haven't bought me yet now on twitter they have so I'm blocked from their Twitter feed, but you can grab my stuff and you can post it to their Twitter page. But on LinkedIn, they made the mistake of going toe to toe with me. They thought they were going to dismiss me. Well, that hasn't worked. And I'm happy to say that a lot of the, our Facebook um, you know, friends, um, Sarah Keogh, John Ruak, Carl, others are, are on their LinkedIn uh, uh, LinkedIn, yes, on their LinkedIn um, page, and are pushing back on them pretty strong. And to be honest, it's fun, you know. I, I, I think actually, we, we need that. We have yeah, to be absolutely. able to push back. That's I, the only that's, way you get people to pay attention too. Like it's sad, but it's true. People well, well, are not going to pay attention if you're just nice, right? Well, also, you know, LinkedIn has a different sort of um, yeah. It's like business, and and, 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 and someone even responded on their LinkedIn page about me. They said, oh, he's confusing LinkedIn for Facebook. <laughs> no, you just don't have no, a boss to no, worry I'm about. <laughs> I'm well aware of where I am. <laughs> well, well, guys, I really hate to cut this short because it's such a great conversation. But Seth, we're going to have you back real soon to continue this right. conversation and expand on a lot of these subjects. So we have a few minutes. Is there anything... Uh, we left on the table real quick, Carl or Seth, that you guys want to get out? I'd just like to follow up on, on this discussion of, about the whole fake meat issue. It's, it's part of a larger fallacy of the climate movement, which is this notion that by doing less harm, uh, we can solve the issue. And, and that's not good enough. It's not good enough to use a little less water or to use a little less fossil fuels and so on. We need to go beyond that and really begin doing good instead. And do we need to cut fossil fuels? Of course, there's no question. But, you know, we, we need to uh, take it far beyond that. And agriculture has the leading role to play. I mean, every industry needs to do its part. You know, electric vehicles, they're, they're great. Uh, 
you know, riding a bicycle instead of, you know, taking a car, you know, that's great. Walk if you can, you know, whatever. Um, and every acre of land around the world that's managed by humans can be in service to humanity. There's great research now showing that each, each acre can be pulling out roughly a ton of carbon per year. And with billions of acres of land around the world to work with, that's how we can be removing billions of tons of carbon from the air. And that's the scale that we need to be thinking at. And it also rejuvenates communities. It, it provides jobs for people. It helps to address these nu nutritional deficiencies that we see in, in children and, and adults all, all over the world. So um, it's, a, it's a very broad solution that's available everywhere. Anyone can do it in their backyards, any scale of farming. And that's really what we need to be, um, be pushing for and, and working towards. Yeah, and, I, and I, I'll just I'll just con concur with that. You know, the 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 number one fallacy is that it's good enough to do less harm. And and so the two main sort of marketing tenants of like imposter foods and other things like that is one that meat is bad and two that well we do less harm. And neither of those things are true meat isn't bad and it's not okay to do net less harm. You have to actually do good. You have to produce protein in a way that sequesters carbon. Yes, exactly. Bang. Bang. And there's one way to do that. There's only one way to do that. And that's with regenerative grazing. Now, now Gabe Brown and others also do a crop rotation. So he does, he does soy as a cash crop. Okay, and that's because in his context, it makes sense to do so. But the second he starts getting paid for his soil carbon drawdown, it's not going to be worth it to do the soy as a cash crop anymore. Eventually, there will be a trade-off. They say, hey, you know, annuals, annuals don't to... sequester carbon. You know, so there, there, there's, there's the other part of this. There's the other leg, if you will, is the price on soil carbon. And as soon as there's a price on soil carbon, and that's another thing that the fake meat people are going to push against. As soon as there's a price on soil carbon, and as soon as in the next farm bill, which is what's going to happen, right. they're going to change the whole um, subsidy program. Um, people are going to be like, why grow soy? You know, let's just start grazing. It's and, it's going to be a whole new world, and I hope people are ready to adapt in a big yeah. hurry. Because if they don't, yeah. they're going to go the way of Kodak. That makes me excited, though, because we are we're going to do it. We're yes. going to do it. Yes, the yes, bus. I would add, it's ironic that at the same time, Bill Gates is saying, "Eat less." I know. You'll need. Microsoft just purchased carbon credits from a holistic grazing operation. Well, he, he, well, like, it, it confuses me. <laughs> the farm ground that he bought, the 242,000 acres of farm ground that he bought last year, he didn't even know he did that. <laughs> like he he was he was he was on the internet a couple weeks ago like cuz he got questioned about it. He's like, "Oh, I, I didn't even know that happened. My people did that because we want to control the seeds." I'm like, "Oh, that makes it better." And it has nothing to do with climate. It has nothing <laughs> like, to do with climate. But that guy, uh, he's going to have a wake-up call one of these days about the ecological effects of his farming. And yeah. I would I would allege that Bill Gates is the world's largest single polluter because – He buys offsets. He buys offsets. Well, not only does he buy offsets. I mean he flies around a Gulfstream 
whatever that burns yeah, 500 gallons an hour. But no, the farm yeah, ground that he owns, all the soil erosion, all the pesticide, herbicide runoff, he's the world's largest polluter in my mind. There's so much good he could do. Like, I wish I wish he saw that potential of, of actually the good. He he's he's almost he's almost a Lex Luthor figure these days. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. best thing he can do right now is to shut up. <laughs> I can't disagree. And uh, guys, I think we've got to end there. Thank you so much for your time today. And uh, we really appreciate it, Seth and Carl. Thanks for joining us. Okay, our pleasure. Take care.